Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. All right, folks, before we get into this, you are just going to have to bear with Ravi. Like, I'm going to have to bear with Ravi. The Chiefs and the Bills played uh, this weekend. I, I don't know the result. For, as far as I know, the game was called uh, off. But Ravi, go go ahead. Well, I'm going to give you the same courtesy you gave me, which I, I don't remember exactly, but I think you took it easy on me. Uh, it I really, I honestly, like, it's such a black hole in my memory. I vaguely remember you being really nice to me after that. I had to be. You were rendered mute for 24 hours. I was worried about you. I remember, you know, I I have such respect for your wife. I think the only tense moment we've ever had was when she was trying to cheer me up in your your living room after the game, and I snapped at her, and I felt so bad about it. I was just like, don't talk to me. Uh, I felt terrible about that. But I actually, I don't think I ever talked about this, but after that game, I went, the, the playoff game, not this one, I went to, uh, I had an Airbnb in Kansas City. I ordered, like, junk food. I woke up the next morning just basically hugging a pizza box and a bunch of wrappers of random food, and I missed my flight. And it wasn't like a missed my flight, like I overslept. I literally woke up and was just paralyzed. I couldn't move. I, I could not it's make like it there. It's like a bad breakup. Yeah. And so I went to a coffee shop, and I was just like, all right, I'm going to like be productive. I'm going to forget about all this. And literally everybody was like, wow, could you hear that game? I hear every hearing everybody talking about it. <laughs> then I get to the airport for the late flight back and it's literally all sad Bills fans. It's like, <laughs> you know, in, in the sort of realm of sports sadness, it was definitely the most sad sports day I've ever had. But I, on the positive side, I think it's like, it's cool to just have the rivalry. You know, it's cool that we do this mm-hmm. podcast. I know some people hate like, you know, but even I get some messages from people who don't even like football and they're like, it's just a ritual now that people know that this is what we're going to talk about at the beginning. But it is great that the two greatest football players alive happen to be the players for our respective teams. It's really fun, you know, and this is back and forth. What what made it easier for me is I didn't think we were going to win that game, and neither did Vegas. Yeah. Uh, and it was a game the whole way. Uh, the Chiefs were missing some some key pieces, and yeah. and I think that was a factor. But as I texted you afterwards, like, man, Josh Allen did a couple of things in that game that were just incredible. So it was a so great fun. game. I'm glad it was not a playoff game. Uh, yeah. It would probably hurt more for me if it was a playoff game. But uh, anyway, I'm sure you have a song you need to play. No, Go ahead. I actually have a new one, but I didn't <laughs> tee it up because I want to give the listeners just a little bit of a break from all of that kind of stuff. But I did find a song that I really like, but I'm not going to. I found a guy who created a whole album of Bill's songs, which is just crazy. And they're all for this year. 
And I'm talking about like deep cuts. Like he talks about like the backup right guard in one of the rap songs. I mean, this guy is like really into it. Uh, but I'll say like if this game goes, if the playoffs go through Orchard Park, man, I'm going to, I know the answer is no, but I'm going to keep bugging you to come out there with me because that would be fun. It sounds very cold, but that would be fun. All right. Well, I think part of what we're doing is filibustering because we're skipping talking trash this week because there's a lot of serious stuff going on. One of the most serious things that's happening in this country is the Arizona gubernatorial election. We talked about it last week. We were a little hard on Katie Hobbs, I I think for good reason, for not debating Carrie Lake. I think part of the reason why Hobbs is afraid to debate Carrie Lake is that Carrie Lake is very good. Uh, at what she does. And Carrie Lake just did a a press conference in which she castigated the press for what she thought was a unfair standard about election denialism. Let's go to that clip. Let's talk about election deniers. Here's 150 examples of Democrats denying election results. Oh, wow. Look at this. This is from this is from uh, Joe Biden's press secretary. Reminder, Brian Kemp stole the gubernatorial election from Georgians and Stacey Abrams. Democrats saying that. Is that an election denier? Oh, look at this. Just heard Republican Ryan Costello said it would be difficult for Stacey Abrams to win because she lost her state bid, but yet she's still claiming she never lost. This is outright Hillary Clinton. Trump is an illegitimate president. Is she an election denier? This one says, was the 2016 election legitimate it now definitely is a question worth asking that's the los angeles times so it's okay for democrats to question elections but it's not okay for republicans this is some uh you know a high level craft i guess scary stuff how should our listeners deal with these kind of claims like hey democrats and republicans deny elections well, before we get to that, I wanted to officially declare this a, a Carrie Lake emergency because, yeah. like, like in the original notes that we had here, you you know had this press conference as possibly under talking trash, and then we talked about it beforehand, and it was like we don't have any trash to talk on it. It's it's just quite a performance, and it's an emergency. Like Carrie Lake is extremely skilled at what she does, and I think everybody should consider this an emergency. It when you see somebody she she was a you know a news anchor for a very long time and there is a difference between people who are extremely comfortable on camera as broadcasters and people who are not and interestingly that difference is that you end up seeming more natural and more relatable the longer you spend in front of the camera it's an inverse to what you would expect, right? You would think that people who were on TV all the time, that maybe they would seem more out of touch when they go to try and, and you know, make political arguments and be politicians. But no, it's there's something to the more often you do it, the more genuine and more authentic you can seem, the more comfortable you are. I, I can remember personally, the second time I did Bill Maher, I was on there with Andy Cohen. And Andy's a friend of mine. And I remember having this moment halfway through where I was watching Andy while we were we were doing the show, and I was looking at Andy, and I remember having this thought, like, this dude doesn't seem like he's on TV at all. Like, this is exactly, like, without any distinction, this is exactly how he is when he's not on TV. And I remember thinking, that is such a gift. That's how much TV this dude has done. And Carrie Lake seems like that. She's done so much TV that she can take this argument that is a totally bogus, crazy town argument that it's completely normal to deny elections in this country and have me watching it going, 
Well, that kind of makes a lot of sense. And then I like snap out of it. Like that's the emergency. The emergency is that she, you know, presents this claim and you go, well, it's a pretty good point. Yeah. It's scary. I think like the easiest thing to do in these cases, I agree with everything about Carrie Lake and all that. And, and like, if you are a listener who has a family member, friend or anything in Arizona who you think is in any way on the fence, this is priority number one. Call that person and beg them not to vote for Carrie Lake. Uh, and and let me give you just one piece of ammunition for not just the Carrie Lakes of the world, but the hundreds of, of candidates that we're all dealing with around the country who are engaging in, in election denialism. And this is going to be at your dinner tables, at your family gatherings, in conversations with your family and friends who, have, who are on the fence. They're going to bring this argument to you. They may have already. Now, with Carrie Lake, it's hard to in real time, be like, all right, you're, you're throwing out a, like 10 claims at once, but pick the most prominent one, which is Hillary Clinton. The idea that Hillary Clinton denied the results of the 2020 election. Here are just a few facts here. Number one, Hillary Clinton conceded the election the night of the election. And then the next day, which is November 9th, she gave a press conference in which she said, quote, last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he'll be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome that we wanted or worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election. She then showed up to the inauguration, right? And she didn't throw all these lawsuits out. She didn't whine about the election. She moved on, right? Now, there are probably some extraneous comments she made where she was hurt and she may have been like, a very mild case of being a sore loser. Uh, but you contrast that with Trump. We all know what he did. He denied the election every step of the way. He uh, encouraged and bullied his vice president to try to overturn the election results, the U.S. Senate. He was calling state election officials, including on tape. We have him talking to the Georgia Secretary of State, asking him to find over 11,000 votes to overturn the election results. He instigated an insurrection. And then only after that, did he have the courage to finally say, quote, this is his January 7th statement. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. Didn't attend the inauguration. That's the maximum we get from him. And then he goes back to election denialism and then supporting candidates all across the country who are denying elections. We've got hundreds of election deniers around the country that are largely a result of this rhetoric and there are candidates that Trump supports. It is his litmus test. That's different. I know our listeners know that, but I'll pick that one case and just be like, that's an absurd example. I think that's a great point. I think if you have to go deeper than that, I guess because the people are going to come back at you with the quotes from Hillary Clinton, with the quotes from Stacey Abrams. And I guess the way to handle that is to say, look, at no point did they ever challenge the vote totals. No. That that's that's a difference, right? Is that, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was saying that he was illegitimate, was talking about the influence campaign by Russia. And she was casting doubt not on the election, but on the campaign and on the activities of Trump, right? And then in Stacey Abrams' case, she never uh, challenged the vote totals on election day or in the election. What she challenged, understandably, I think, was the fact that a ton of registrations had been thrown out by Kemp, who was the Secretary of State. They were they seemed to be very legitimate registrations, and they were thrown out, not allowed by him prior to the election. Her argument was more, there were a lot of people who were not allowed to vote who should have been allowed to vote. Those are very different things yeah. uh, than saying, well, the math is not the same. Like, you know, to just say with no evidence, that math is not my math is a very different thing. One of those things challenges the circumstances of an individual election. And the other thing, what Kerry Lake and what Donald Trump and the rest are doing is saying, 
that democracy in America doesn't actually work. That's two totally different things. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you, Ed. So I think obviously you get only so far by playing defense here, but I do think it's really important defense. We cannot concede this point. We cannot concede that the two are the same. And we have to fight back with everything we have. And, and Stacey Abrams is the prominent example, right? Like you talk about her lawsuits, not one of them would have resulted in overturning the election. That's the difference. You That's know? a great point. Not one of them would have resulted in that. And like you said, like she had a pretty decent case for the things that she was saying and still wasn't trying to overturn the results of the election. And we could quibble about whether she's going about the messaging right or whatever, but it's just different. And she's running for governor of Georgia. She wasn't the presidential nominee. So even if you concede, which I don't, that something she was doing was inappropriate, it is different than the nominee of the president and then hundreds of candidates around the country. They pick one, right? But this is what they do. They're like, you know, some, is there some Democratic candidate with extremely insane rhetoric about elections? I guarantee it, right? But this is what they do. They they find the one, one little kernel of something even approximating what all of their candidates are doing and saying, well, we're just the same. And you cannot concede that. I think you make the most important point there, which is that in none of the cases that Carrie Lake brought up, did any of those candidates try and change the result of the election and try and undo how it, like who won. They didn't try and go back and get that changed. And that is a massive difference. Jason, I know it was probably a tough night of sleep on Sunday, but I know it could have been worse uh, because, you know, you and I, we both have uh, Helix mattresses. Uh, what I love about them is they're personalized. So you take this quiz, they line you up with the mattress that's perfect for you. How's that mattress treating you right now? Uh, pretty good. You know, I mean, actually yesterday uh, I got back from being out of town and I just really needed a lot of sleep. And I actually, I had a, a lunch meeting that started at 11 and I have children. So I usually don't even need to set an alarm because I, I wake up at 630 every morning. It just happens. Uh, but we got back late and the kids were at their grandparents. Uh, and so they weren't here. And with no children in the house and no responsibility to wake me up, I was very nearly late to my 11 o'clock lunch. Oh my God. Uh, and so which speaks well to the mattress, I would say. Well, they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. You can go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Jason, your buddy Lee, he lost a bet to me this week and now has to do seven Murphs in a row, which for our listeners is a crazy workout. And that is not meant to be done two days in a row, never mind seven days in a row. Uh, and I think what we need to do is uh, send them an extra supply of Athletic Greens, because if I know anything, Athletic Greens AG1 is the best way to recover fast. Yeah, Lee's going to need it. I couldn't believe he made that bet. Uh, but so what is this stuff? I mean, if you don't know, what podcast have you been listening to? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. It's got all the stuff you need. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Well, let's talk about this appearance that Barack Obama made over at Pod Save America with our friends over there. It's, you know, making some waves here. You know, Obama has, I think, been a little bit careful about lecturing Democrats or young people or things like that. Like he every now and then, I think, you know, wades into the debates about the future of the party. But it seems like I'd been hearing behind the scenes that he he's had certain misgivings about the direction of the party over the past few years. And every now and then at his summit, like I went to a summit a couple of years ago that he did where he he talked about like the need to show a generosity of spirit to people with different opinions and all of that. But this was the most specific and thorough he's ever been. Let's play one clip in particular that I thought was really striking. I think where we get into trouble sometimes is when we try to suggest that uh, some groups are more, uh, because they historically have been victimized more, um, that somehow they have a status that's different than other people and that we're going around scolding folks if they don't use exactly the right phrase or you know, that, that, that identity politics becomes the principal uh, uh, lens through which we view, you know, uh, our, our various uh, political uh, challenges. And to me, uh, I think that that, for a lot of average folks, ends up feeling as if you're not speaking to me and my concerns or for that matter, my kids' concerns and their future. So Jason, this is about as pointed as I've ever heard him. Uh, when you heard this, where did your mind go? Uh, my mind went immediately to uh, the people who I always hear from uh, in the party whenever we talk about this on the show, who kind of come at us on social media and that kind of thing uh, with what I consider to be sort of this purity test angle on liberalism. And I just... I don't know, man, like living here in the middle of the country where I got friends and neighbors who don't see things the way I see them, I I don't think it makes me more moderate. I don't think it says anything about my politics or my beliefs to feel like I have to find ways to bring these people in, not push them away. And I, you know, Obama is, people forget, like his politics, he came up in the Midwest, you know? I mean, like he had to go win a statewide race in Illinois. That's where he comes from. Yeah, I agree. I squarely am with Obama on this. And I know like, I know there's a lot of disagreement within the party on this, although I do think the majority, and in some cases, the vast majority is with us on this. You know, the man left office with a 59% approval rating. Every step of the way, the message of that campaign, you know, across demographics, the message was universal. And that's what won us that election and what allowed him to win a pretty commanding re-election and leave office very popular was that he was somebody who was obviously very race conscious, but at the same time knew that that couldn't be this blunt instrument that we use to just, you know, beat people over the head and be like, feel guilty about who you are and own your privilege, right? He knew that you had to inspire people around a collective vision to come together. And I think in some ways, what he is saying is that we've lost that a little bit over the past few years. And, you know, from my time at Arena and from my time helping progressive candidates, you know, I think I myself got lost on this a little bit where I, I was, I think I was overweighting the ability to just speak to people about 
certain aspects of identity while leaving out others. Like, you know, he talks about we weren't emphasizing class enough, right? We weren't emphasizing economics enough. We weren't appealing to people's self-interest enough. And I'm just like a big yes. Like, I think he's right. I think a lot about the idea of what is the experience like to be in the right wing or an independent who, like an independent white man who tends to lean conservative. Like, emotionally, what is that experience like? And I keep going back to the idea of kind of what Obama talked about, like the idea of, well, we can be kind of a buzzkill. And right or wrong, a lot of times people do that because it's easier. Because if you, like, if you are a guy from the suburbs or whatever, and you're a white man, and like, let's be honest, like white men and white women are where we need to, in terms of persuasion, it's where we need to grow. Uh, increasingly, unfortunately, also the Hispanic population, because we have to get some folks back. But in in the same sense, it's it's often men. It's often like trying to get men to come around. Now, there's a whole other argument you can make about like, getting more folks who are already with us registered and turned out, that's a different conversation. In the persuasion conversation, which is what Obama's talking about, you have to keep in mind that if you are surrounded by other people like you, it's just easier. And and frankly, like it's not as much fun to try and see things the other way. So what is it that we have to do in order to get people to see things from another perspective? I think what Obama's saying is we have to make it their perspective. We have to match it to their perspective. That's, you know, what we classify as self-interest, which means you can't just be like, hey, you have to consider what it's like for this person. You have to go the next step and be like, if this person is harmed, this person who is unlike you, here's what that does to you and your family. Here's why it should matter to you. I mean, it goes all the way back to his speech in 2004 at the convention, when he talked about the idea that, hey, when you take away the rights of somebody, because he was talking about the Patriot Act at the time, if you violate the rights of somebody in a blue state, it affects people in a red state. It takes their li- their rights away too. Like, that's the universality of it. Yeah, and it, it simplifies people in a way that they resent. So, you know, when I, I've been going around the country, you know, I was in Lehigh County, for example, and I was reporting out even on this podcast, I spent a lot of time with Hispanic voters there. And a lot of them are Republican-leaning Hispanic voters now. And what I continually heard from them is, I feel like the Democratic Party treats me like a single-issue voter, like it's immigration only. And like, that's the only thing I care about. But I'm like anybody else, right? Like, I I care about my small business. I care about my schools, et cetera. And I, I think a lot about, there's this press conference, I don't know if you saw this, Todd Bowles, the coach of the Buccaneers, the football team, was asked in a press conference last week, reporters kept trying to get him to talk about how, um, you know, there was a coaching change, I think at the Panthers, where there was an African-American coach. And they kept asking him, like, how do you feel about this coach uh, and the fact that there's another coach like you and yada, yada, yada. And Bowles' response was really interesting to me. It felt like he resented having, like, to be simplified that way. He was like, I'm a coach. I love a lot of coaches, right? He's like, there are coaches who are white that I that I love and I and I love to see them step up. And then there are coaches who are black. And he just, he I, you could see he was just worn out by the image that the press had of him as this guy who would speak to this as a black issue and not as a football issue, right? And I think that it gets to the fact that there are some people who just don't want to be distilled down to one characteristic and spoken to only because of that characteristic. Uh, and I know it's complicated because, like, in order for us to make progress, we have to take that into account. Like, the affirmative action debate is is a really good example of that. But I think we've we've been a little too reductive. 
Well, it gets to another part of that interview that I thought was really interesting where um, President Obama talked about his mother-in-law trying to learn the right phraseology. You know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells. Uh, and 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 they want some acknowledgement that life is messy and that all of us at any given moment uh, can, you know, uh, say things the wrong way, you know, make mistakes. Uh, Michelle talks uh, about her mother-in-law, or her mother, my mother-in-law, who is a, a extraordinary one. But as Michelle points out, she's 86. You know, and sometimes, it, you know, trying to get the right phraseology when we're talking about issues, Michelle's like, that's like her trying to learn Spanish. <laughs> it doesn't mean she shouldn't try to learn Spanish, but it means that sometimes she's not going to get the words right. Uh, and that's okay. Right. And, and, and that attitude, I think, uh, of just being a little more real and a little more grounded is, is something that I think makes it goes a long way in, in counteracting what is a systematic um, this the the systematic propaganda that I think is being pumped out by Fox News and all these other outlets all the time. I have to assume what he's talking about are, you know, the phrases that the left uses that you know that the other side calls woke, right? Like whether it is trying to be respectful of getting people's pronouns correct or capitalizing uh, black when you write it, all this stuff, right? That you know, you you and I work hard to keep up on, but. I think a lot of that is because we we do things in broadcasting and we speak to a large group and like we we want to make sure we're being respectful and getting that right. But is it fair for us to have the same level of expectation of others? And 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 this is the buzzkill part that he's talking about, the eggshell thing of making people feel like they have to be so careful that they're afraid to make a mistake and then they feel like, "Well, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I'm a part of that." Like and it reminded me like actually it was interesting because it kind of reminded me of the way he invoked his grandmother back in, in 08 when he was uh, talking about race and trying to give an address that would bring people together and help people understand each other. But it it also reminded me of not very long ago when my own mother, who's very much a liberal, asked a question very earnestly. And her question was, what does woke mean? Because she she had heard it so much, and but she had only heard it invoked in a negative way. And she was like, I, I don't know what it means. Can you tell me? And it was like, we weren't having a conversation about this. She just like, hey, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you, what does this mean? And I think that's really what he's talking about is he's not saying that it's inappropriate in some way or it's a strategic mistake for us to try and craft language in a way that makes everybody feel included. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying that we have to make sure that we are not shaming people who haven't learned all of that language yet and that we are going about it in a way that makes them feel included and not excluded. Yeah, I remember, and I think this was my mother who said this to me. It was either my mother or somebody who attended the Women's March. And there was th these signs and this rhetoric around white women voted for Trump. And I'm like, this is, there's a way more precise way to talk about this. My mom didn't vote for Trump. Right. So what are we getting out of using slogans like that that are so reductive? Like, is that going to inspire that person? Like, like, let's say you're the person who didn't like Trump and, you, and for the first time voted Democrat. And then you're showing up to a march and then there's a sign that says white women voted for Trump with absolutely no additional context. You're like, well, then what the fuck? Like, I'm I actually didn't. So I don't want like, I, why are we painting with such a broad brush? Right. It's like in no way is it even meant to persuade. 
you know, and and that's what concerns me. And I think this is a good transition to uh, when we talk about the midterms now, there's polling now. New York Times just came out with a poll with Siena that shows Democrats slipping. And speaking of white women, uh, in the context of the poll, we're losing ground with white independent voters. We also, if you look at the cross tabs, we're not as good as we need to be with Hispanic voters. And we're also not as good, I think it was 78% with black voters. We should be higher on all of those accounts. And I think that gets to the fact that we're struggling right now to hold on to this momentum over the summer. Uh, now, these aren't directly related issues. I think in large part, the stuff that Obama's talking about, the party has gotten better at since like a couple of years ago, I think. Like, I think we've kind of exercised some of those demons from a couple of years ago, but we're still stuck with that brand. But Jason, as you look at the macro issues before we start to go state by state, like, where are you right now? Like in your sort of like level of confidence in this midterm election? Lower than I was three weeks ago, um, a little closer to where I was in early summer. And, and I think that that is a combination of things. I think it is some of the momentum is slowing, but I also think part of it is this is what happens when you get closer to an election. Um, people start to they start to go home to, to where they usually are, right? And, and so there's some of that is normal, right? And the basic trend line, we know it for a midterm election, is that people tend to uh, vote against the party in power, meaning the party in the White House. And in this case, we are the party in power. I mean, in every way other than the Supreme Court, which has kind of been the saving grace that people feel like because of the Supreme Court, saving grace politically, not for the country, but people feel like there is this right-wing bit of power out there, because there is. But I, I just... I'm trying to consistently remind myself that this is somewhat of a of a normal coming home by folks who tend to vote Republican. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, I, I think so. And obviously, there's the midterm data. Like we always, like the party of power always loses seats in the midterm. But the thing is, we just cannot lose. <laughs> like, right. Like it's know, not an option here. Yeah, it is not an option. And and as we'll get to some of these results in certain states, losing would have catastrophic effects. Jason, I know that there's a little bit of doom and gloom coming from this podcast nowadays as we head towards the midterm elections. And uh, and I know this also happens to be a time of year when people just have a lot of anxiety. Work, I think, it just moves at a pace during the fall that is just unparalleled. You also got your kids back in school. They're probably just a couple weeks or a couple months into a new grade, meeting new friends. Just everything is tough right now. You want to get as much done as you possibly can before the holidays. So what I turn to to just to keep myself grounded is the Calm app. This is the number one uh, mental wellness app, and it gives you tools to improve the way that you feel. If you go to com.com slash M54, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and new content is added every week. There's over 100 million people around the world who use Calm to take care of their minds. So Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at com.com slash M54. That's C-A-L-M com slash m54. If you need the news but also need to feel smarter and calmer, then you need to get into Andy Slavitt's bubble. Andy is a former White House advisor and the ultimate outsider's insider. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Andy offers his access to leading experts. Join Andy for discussions on COVID, gun violence, climate change, and more. Uh, I subscribe to this. I've been a guest on it. I think it's a great show. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt is available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's do a little tour of the country. We've talked about some of the high-profile races a lot, but what I want to do is start with a couple of races that are not high-profile and talk about races that you may not be hearing on other podcasts and may not even be reading if you read the news pretty consistently. And let's start with Utah, where you know you, you might be thinking as a progressive, like, we're never going to pick up Utah. But what's fascinating is you have an independent candidate in Evan McMullen. You might remember him because he ran as an independent for president, I believe, uh, previously. And he is running neck and neck with Senator Mike Lee, who's a Republican. And what's fascinating about McMullen is that he has said that if he wins, he will not caucus with either party, which could be a deciding factor. Like, I don't want this to be the world, but, you know, it could be a world where this is the decider between who is the majority leader, right? Like this, this is this is really interesting to me. You know, Lee is only leading McMullen by four percentage points in the most recent poll. Didn't the Utah Democratic Party basically not field a candidate in this race? Isn't that what makes this yeah. especially competitive? Yeah, and they just had a debate, and and it was. I mean, this is a fierce debate between these two right now. You know, so it's it's this was tried a few years ago in Kansas, and ultimately did not work. Um, it was a race where I think Greg Orman ran for the Senate and he, you know, they, the Democratic Party basically got behind him and he was an independent and came close. It didn't end up working. In Utah, it's interesting because, you know, in a statewide race like that, Democrats aren't really going to be a factor. So whatever that is, 20, high 20% or whatever, you got to figure he's going to get that. And then it's a question of how many of the Republicans can he pick up? I actually think, here's what I think about this. I think that it is possible. I think it's probably almost impossible to pull. Yeah. Yeah. And that state, you know, I've got a lot of respect for for Utah. Obviously, we've talked to the governor of Utah on this podcast. It has an independent streak. Now, I think Romney gets too much credit for being, quote unquote, independent, but but he's clearly slightly more independent than his colleagues, right? He's willing to vote for impeachment or whatever. So I have a glimmer of hope that this could be a weird uh, and, and welcome outcome. I, I just also generally like to see independent candidates succeed because I think it's good for our politics in, in many places. Obviously, I love it when they succeed against Republicans, not our people, which which we'll get to yeah. in the next segment. But uh, this is fascinating. So I just want to circle that. There's not much else to say. The debate was fascinating. I think McMullen is, is a very interesting figure. He's basically appealing to the independent spirit of Utah. Like, uh, obviously, like anybody knows anything about the, the history of that state. It's a place that kind of views itself as different than the rest of the country and as a place that has like a, a strong sense of ethics that I think he, if he wins, it will be because of the unique flavor of that state. Uh, and so we'll keep an eye on that. There is another state, though, where there's, a, in this case, a governor's race with a viable independent candidate. This is Oregon. Now, NBC had a really interesting lead to their article about this. They said the last time Oregon voters elected a Republican governor, the top song in the U.S. was Men at Works, Who Can It Be Now? E.T. was dominating the box office and Diet Coke and Bud Light had just hit the shelves for the first time. And that year was 82. I wasn't even alive in 1982. Yet, in the polling that exists right now, you have a three-way race. You have Drazen, who is the Republican candidate who is with a slight lead over Kotek, who's the Democratic candidate. And then you have Johnson, Betsy Johnson, who is a former Democrat running as an independent. So the kind of the reverse of what was happening in Utah. And she's polling, you know, behind, but still taking double digit percentage points in this race. And this looks like a race where the Democrats could lose a gubernatorial seat that they've held for my entire lifetime. What's also interesting about it is when I first saw this, I assumed 
that Johnson must be running to the left because it's Oregon and taking yeah. a bunch of, of uh, votes away from the Democrat that way. But actually, you know, she's pro-choice, but she's also against common sense gun safety regulations. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she it's it's much more of like an eclectic sort of Jesse Ventura style campaign. And what I don't understand is why that's not taking some votes away from the Republican. And I suppose that must be more of an Oregon thing, right? Yeah. Like, She's taking some votes away from the Republican, according to the analysis I saw, but more from the Democrat. And what's really going on here, I did 20 minutes on Lost Debate on this a couple weeks ago, is there is a spike in crime and in overdoses in Oregon. And there was a botched decriminalization effort at the state level. I think that combined Mm -hmm. with, I think, with some really messy stuff that's happened in the city of Portland uh, that kind of mirrors, in a sense, some of the stuff that happened in San Francisco, where there's just a revolt of progressives and Democrats and independents who are just kind of fed up. And the decriminalization stuff is is a classic example of really good intentions with really poor follow through. And what I did in the segment for Lost Debate was I compared it to Portugal, which is a country that did decriminalization right, where they were able to decriminalize drugs and push people into treatment. Whereas Oregon, it was just kind of one of these things that progressives do from time to time where they just kind of roll out bold policy and then they either are lazy or inattentive to the details. And I that's part of what the backlash is here. Now, do I think a Republican candidate is the answer? Usually no. I don't really know a lot about this Republican, but it is a statement, whether the Democrat wins or loses, it is a statement, in my opinion, to, to Democrats across the country to take implementation really seriously, because even in a pretty blue state, people are really frustrated. It just goes back to the thing we always talk about is that you still got to do the job, particularly for something like governor. Right. Um, you, it's, you know, that, that competency still really matters. So... I've spent a lot of time working at North Carolina elections. Arena has been involved in it for years. And what's interesting about North Carolina, there's a great David Graham piece in The Atlantic about this, is this is as unsexy as it gets, but bear with me on this. Right now, we have Roy Cooper, who's a really good Democratic governor of North Carolina. He has vetoed 75 bills in the past six years as governor, including some terrible stuff on abortion, election stuff, all that kind of stuff. Now, the Republicans are very close to getting a supermajority where they would be able to override his veto. And so this is a case where everybody acknowledges Democrats won't be able to take a majority in either the state houses there, but we just need to play a little bit of defense and make sure that we hold the seats that we have. And so I just wanted to highlight this because it's as unsexy as it gets. State legislative races, not even trying to get the majority, playing defense, but it would be an absolute catastrophe if we backslide in that state. And so I know that there's work happening from Future Now, which is Daniel Squadron's group, where they they have a really good model for picking good candidates uh, where your money can go. So that's Future Now. You can go to their website or Arena, my um, previous organization that I'm still on the board of. They both have worked together to push candidates and help identify those candidates for you for those races. And so I just want to highlight that and also give a shout out to Greg Meyer and other people in North Carolina who do good work there and have been just fighting this fight forever. As somebody who got to the state legislature when we had a Republican majority but a Democratic governor and watched as the Republicans worked very hard to get a veto-proof majority and then eventually achieve it, I can tell you that once that happens, it flips a switch 
to where it gets exponentially harder to undo it because it allows them to consolidate power in such a way that it, it gets very difficult to wrench it away because their their fundraising ability becomes just completely unrivaled because you know every interest in the state is like well I have to support them because they have all the power and then on top of that they end up with more and more authority to draw the lines and to do all the stuff that gets them more and more entrenched so it's sort of like the you know domestic political like state level equivalent of a nation entering the nuclear club it's like once they do like you have to treat them completely differently. And so you have to do everything you can to stop it from happening. And actually, and I'm going to direct people to this website called uh, the statesproject.org, which is the uh, future now effort to hold state legislatures and win back certain state legislatures. They have a whole North Carolina model, uh, but you could also check out some other states where they feel like your money can go the distance. So there are a couple other states that I just want to point people to. There's uh, some reporting out of Colorado where Republicans are going on the offensive now, thinking that they can pick up seats, uh, depending on how you frame it. Politico framed it as Republicans thinking that in certain states like Georgia, they're backsliding, so they want to add states to the map. Some other people are painting it as, you know, Republicans are shoring up certain states like Wisconsin and now want to add to their majority. Whatever framing you accept, Republicans are pouring a ton of money into Colorado. They just poured uh, over a million dollars into Colorado from the Senate pack and Democrats dumped another nine million into that. So the polls aren't particularly close. Like 538 has Bennett at 47.6 to his opponent at 39.8. But whatever they're seeing, they're investing money in it. It could be a little bit of like a kind of rope-a-dope or something where they're just trying to get Democrats to spend money in a race that they don't take too seriously. I'm not exactly sure, but that's just one to keep your eye out on. And then there's, you know, there's all sorts of reporting now. There's this Rhode Island congressional seat that Democrats are playing defense on, et cetera. There's just a lot happening out there. Pick a few races at each level, donate to them. If you live in a state where these races are hot, go beyond. Like for me, it's New York 11 uh, in Staten Island. You know, bring that energy that we brought in 2018 so that we can close the deal in these final days because enthusiasm is going to matter here. And then to end on uh, sort of an upward note in terms of this rundown of races, interestingly, in Iowa, where you have Admiral Mike Franken running against Chuck Grassley, who I believe was one of the founders of the state, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's now, according to one poll, and not not just any poll, the Des Moines Register poll, within three points. Uh, so it's 46-43. And, you know, nobody's heard anything about that race. We've been following it because our friend J.D. Shulton, in addition to being an incoming state legislator there, is also the political director for that race. Admiral Franken has now gotten to a point where he's, he's winning independence in the state by over 10%, uh, according to this poll. And so he's really within striking distance. And what it really all comes down to, it's, you know, obviously there are elements where Iowa historically has been a little more, a lot more swingy. I think abortion is certainly an issue in that race. But on top of that, the individual aspect of it, the the candidate aspect of it is, you know, Chuck Grassley is really old. And he's made some statements during this campaign that I think they've done a good job seizing on to demonstrate how out of touch he actually is. And so it, it is possible that that could be a Democratic win. It's not one that's like a toss up yet, but it's every bit as much on our radar as Colorado certainly would be on the Republican radar. Well, uh, Jason, one more. I know we have a ton of listeners in Kansas. Uh, it's right over the border from you over there. Uh, for our uh, grab and order and road to the midterms, uh, 
you know, just let's shine a light on that gubernatorial. Yeah. So uh, Laura Kelly is the governor of Kansas. She's done a very good job the last few years. And among other things, what she's done a very good job of is fending off all of the efforts by Kansas Republicans to nationalize everything she does. And to, you know, again, with a governor, you can get a lot done by getting a lot done, right? You can get a lot done politically by just being very effective and being somebody who people think uh, is is uh, competent and doing their job well. It's very difficult to do that as a legislator because people aren't like, hey, asked a great question on that committee or she asked a great question on that committee. Um, but you can do that as a governor. And Laura Kelly has done that. She's it's it's interesting that we're kind of ending here because she's the opposite of Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake is this incredible broadcaster and performer. And what Laura Kelly is, is this incredibly competent professional when it comes to the work of governing. I was just having lunch with somebody yesterday who's working with Laura a bit on uh, on her campaign and was just telling me how Laura, you know, she doesn't mind parades, but it's not the part she likes. Like she wants to be in budget negotiations. And so that can be challenging around campaign time, but it's extremely effective when it comes to governing. Uh, and it's Kansas, though, so it's a close race. So for our last midterm spotlight, we wanted to highlight the re-election campaign of Kansas Governor Laura Kelly. Our producer, Sarah, talked to Emma O'Brien, a Kansas Democratic Party communications advisor, about that race. So enjoy this. This governor's race has been gaining quite a bit of national attention, even beyond Kansas. Why do you think that the country is paying attention to Kansas this year in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people have just seen the success that Governor Kelly has had in, you know, what is typically considered, you know, a quote unquote red state. Um, you know, she uh, has really focused on issues that matter most to Kansans, um, like, you know, making sure folks um, that public schools are fully funded four years in a row, um, making sure people are able to pay their bills, pay for groceries, making sure our roads and bridges are safe to drive on, and really just turning this, uh, the state of you know Kansas around in the last four years, especially after what she inherited from former Governor Sam Brownback. Can you talk a little bit more about the challenges that she inherited uh, when coming into this office? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, for those not familiar with Sam Brownback, the former governor of Kansas, really his his quote unquote tax experiment was essentially just tax cuts for the richest and wealthiest Kansans. You know, in order to pay for the tax experiment, he had to steal money from our different federal programs. So um, stealing from public education, he, you know, stole from the Kansas Highway Fund, which is essentially what funded projects for our roads and our bridges. It tanked the economy. Um, it left Kansas schools so underfunded that some schools had to even go to four day school weeks just because they didn't have the funds. And so things looked really, really different and, and pretty dire for the state of Kansas, you know, back in 2017. And when Governor Kelly launched her campaign, she promised she'd turn the, the thing, you know, the state around. She promised to be the education governor for Kansas, which is exactly what she's done. You know, in the last four years, she has fully funded public education all four years in a row. She has created so much, um, you know, economic success and history in the state of Kansas, which really would have been unheard of and previously thought impossible under the previous administration. And what is at risk if Governor Kelly is not reelected in these issues that she's made great progress on? Exactly. So I think the biggest thing at risk is that Derek Schmidt, who is her Republican opponent, 
with Sam Brownback's top defender. So while Sam Brownback is busy, you know, tanking the economy, underfunding public schools, stealing from the Kansas Highway Fund, Derek Schmidt is there every step of the way, you know, defending him, standing behind him while um, these policies are ruining our state. Derek Schmidt actually defended Brownback's tax cuts to public schools, costing, you know, at least $1.4 million. um, And that burden, that financial burden then fell on Kansas taxpayers to cover that cost. He he stood behind Brownback as his policies, you know, only benefited the top, you know, wealthiest Kansans while the middle class suffered. One of the bigger things, you know, Governor Kelly was successfully able to axe the food tax. She was able to eliminate Kansas's 6.5% tax on food, which was the second highest in the nation. Um, You know, she worked across the aisle to get that done. And Derek Schmidt, you know, on the other hand, actually voted in the state Senate to increase the food sales tax. So really the the juxtaposition between these two candidates, the the, the differences between these two candidates could not be clearer. And when we were making so much progress under Governor Kelly and she's made so much economic history, why would we risk any of that just to go back under Derek Schmidt, who was Brownback's biggest defender? Yeah, absolutely. Majority 54 is a show that's kind of all about reaching across the aisle and having conversations between conservatives and liberals. And so in that spirit, what can Governor Kelly do and what has she done to kind of unite Kansans? I think that's one of the biggest things that Kansans really like and respect about Governor Kelly. To to be as successful as Governor Kelly has been, she has um, signed upwards of 280, I think, um, bipartisan bills. The nature of the um, Kansas state legislature with having so much control from in the in the state house and senate from republicans and then governor kelly you know being a democratic governor everything she does is bipartisan right just by nature of of the the makeup of the state legislature and so you know she does a really great job of working across the aisle to find solutions that are best for kansans she will work with anyone she worked with president donald trump during the pandemic to make sure our meatpacking plants stayed open to feed you know not only kansas but the entire country she will work with anyone if it means helping Kansans, if it means making um, economic history for our state, you know, similar to the work that she did with eliminating the food sales tax. That was, you know, really a bipartisan victory of folks from both sides of the aisle coming together to save, um, you know, Kansans an average of $500 every year once it's fully enacted. And that's just one example of her her success of reaching across the aisle. You know, and also it's one of the things most notable about this campaign is she is getting endorsements from folks on both sides of the aisle. So Derek Schmidt's two former bosses, former Governor Bill Graves and former U.S. Senator Nancy Kassebaum, both endorsed Governor Kelly over Derek Schmidt for re-election. Um, those are two you know, incredibly well-respected Republicans here in our state. Former Governor Mike Hayden also endorsed Governor Kelly for re-election. All of those folks are crediting the success that we've seen, the economic success, you know, fully funding our schools, making sure projects for our roads and bridges to be maintained are fully funded. And so I, I think her message is just really resonating. For sure. Can you talk a bit more about the problems in education that Kansans are facing and what Governor Kelly wants to do about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, like like I had mentioned before, Governor Kelly inherited a public education system just completely in shambles. Students were, you know, not getting the education that they deserved or needed to to set them up for success. And it was causing people to not want to stay in Kansas, maybe even, you know, pursue like higher education or opportunities in different states. Governor Kelly knows that funding education is an economic issue just as much as it is, you know, a moral issue of making sure our kids have the best quality education that, um, you know, that we know that they deserve because we need to keep 
um, our workforce strong and we need to keep folks in Kansas to want to raise their own families one day and want to have their own kids go to our, you know, great public schools. Governor Kelly is a, is a deep supporter in public schools. Her Both of her, you know, children went to Kansas public schools. And so I think what she was seeing before she took office um, was just that kids were not getting the same opportunity depending on, you know, where they lived and in what part of the state. And so she wanted to make sure that every Kansas child received, you know, a quality education. Um, and so since taking office, you know, she has fully funded public schools for four years in a row. This last session, she had allotted 30, she had recommended to the legislature uh, $30 million in additional funding for special education students um, and for our, our programs for special education. And it was Derek Schmidt's allies in the state legislature that blocked that from becoming a reality. So, you know, in Governor Kelly's second term, she's going to, you know, focus on education once again, continue to be the education governor she promised to be. And Derek Schmidt just can't, um, you know, he can say whatever he wants in an election year. But the reality is we know how he would act on these issues because we've seen what he's done with the little power he's had in the last 10 to 12 years. And he's used it to defend Brownback's tax experiment and the tax cuts to public schools. So, you know, he can't be trusted with with our education system. He can't be trusted with our students moving forward. And so going into this kind of last leg uh, before the election, what are your top priorities? Yeah, I think it's just getting the message out there about, you know, Governor Kelly. I think um, this the first time in Kansas state history we have one of the biggest voter outreach um, contact programs. Between now and Election Day, we are hoping to knock a million doors um, and have hundreds of thousands of high quality face to face conversations with swing voters who are going to be deciding this election. And I think similarly to what we saw in August, it's you know, it's going to come down to turnout and and turning out as many folks as possible and building on that momentum into, you know, November. We have our coordinated campaign, Common Sense Kansas. Um, We have over 70 staff across the state that are having those conversations with voters, getting them the information they need for this November, and just really mobilizing both voters and volunteers to show up for Governor Kelly and Democrats down the ballot. And so, you know, basically our our biggest message, you know, for those folks um, listening, the best way to support Governor Kelly is to, um, you know, get involved with the coordinated campaign that's, you know, volunteering to knock doors for folks that maybe are listening to this outside of the state of Kansas. You can make phone calls for the governor to support her and, you know, helping register voters. That's how we ensure that Governor Kelly uh, is reelected this fall. And you, you know, more more information on that can be found at, you know, our, our website, Common Sense Kansas. And um, yeah, I, I would just really encourage folks to check that out and, and help get involved any way you can. So thank you to Emma O'Brien for having that conversation with our producer, Sarah Schleed, who did a great job. If you have thoughts on that interview or any of the other stuff we said, my guess is some of you have thoughts on some of what we said about President Obama's interview. Maybe some of you have some thoughts about what we said about Carrie Lake. Let us have it. You know, don't just do it on Twitter. Twitter's fine. But, you know, leave us a voicemail. Send us an email, something that we can use on the air. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. And if you uh, want to give some kudos to our producer, Sarah Schleed, on what a great job she did with that interview, you can tweet at her. It's at Sarah Schleed. That's S-A-R-A-S-C-H-L-E-E-D-E. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 
Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Desua Agbenile and Sarah Schleed. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.